I want to jump right in. We're going to be taking a look at, like I said, uh, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. I'm going to read, and we will jump in. So again, buckle up. It's lengthy, but hopefully it all makes sense. I'm going to pick it up at verse 18, and we'll just jump into the rest of it. So verse 18 says this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now jumping into the actual passage. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works then these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he, had, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray, and then we'll jump in. So, Jesus, right now, we invite you to open our hearts to all that you have to say. God, we need a revelation of you. So, we ask you, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. God, remove any hindrances that would be in the way, any obstructions that would keep us from just entering into all that you have here this morning. So, again, we lay this time at your feet, and have your way in our midst. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So I want to uh, quickly jump into a little bit of context uh, into the bigger story. So John chapter 5 is basically one big whole. It's a very lengthy chapter, but it kind of covers one large uh, storyline of Jesus going to the temple. And I'll just kind of go through each one of these bit by bit so you can kind of get a little bit of a bullet point um, knowledge of what's been happening up to this point. So we see, first of all, that Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. This is around uh, verse 2, which is a, a well-known area. A lot of people that were uh, invalid or crippled or who had issues or problems, they would go there or they basically lived there. That was their home. And the hope was that uh, when the water was stirred, there was a myth that was kind of surrounding that, um, that some, as they would go into the water, they would be healed. That was kind of the idea. Jesus uh, descends into this whole entire area. Again, hundreds 
people perhaps are not well in this particular area, but Jesus focuses on one particular individual, and he rescues him. And verse, uh, the second thing that we see here is that Jesus asked this one paralyzed man that was there, he says, do you want to be healed? And again, just kind of a, uh, a fascinating question that, of course, the guy wants to be healed. Like, every, you, you assume that. Um, but, again, I think the thing that we looked at a couple weeks ago when we focused on this chapter extensively, um, or this particular story, is that this guy did not exactly know what that meant, so he asked Jesus, you know, I want to get into the pool, but no one's able to get me into the pool. And I think it's an important question to just kind of pause and think about. Um, not everybody wants to get healed. Some people, they could be asked the question, do you want to get healed? Some people don't want to get healed. They would prefer to stay in their own misery or prefer to stay within that being their identity. And as a result of that, they kind of remain stuck. And this particular guy turns to Jesus, and then Jesus acts on his behalf and actually heals him. And one thing I love about this story, I mean, there there's some of you, your story is that you were seeking for life, seeking for Jesus, and God met you. Some of you, you weren't necessarily seeking for God, and God nonetheless found you. Like, that's that was my story. I didn't, I wasn't necessarily seeking for God myself. I didn't have this deep ache or hunger in my soul, but God uh, met me. And this is the story of this particular guy here. Uh, the third thing that we see is that Jesus healed this paralyzed man, verse 11. <clears throat> and then ver- the next thing we see is that Jesus was confronted afterwards uh, by the religious leaders because we're told in the story that Jesus healed this particular guy on what's known as the Sabbath, which is a sacred day. And so uh, the religious leaders of that particular time, being very zealous for the law of God, uh, they were frustrated with Jesus. In fact, we're even told, so frustrated that they sought to actually kill Jesus, to put him to death. Um, they confront Jesus, and they begin to force the question upon Jesus. Why did you do this? What happened here? Why did this take place? And they're basically interrogating Jesus. So in a sense, Jesus is on trial, not an actual trial, but on a trial based upon the religious leaders who had clout, had power, had authority to do whatever they wanted with Jesus. So this is a this is a pretty significant confrontation that's happening between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, the next thing we see that Jesus basically responds with this lengthy monologue, which is kind of a half of what we had just read here just now. But what I want to do right now is I want to shift a little bit into thinking about this larger whole. And we're going to be basically tackling this larger whole passage that we just read here just now over the next several weeks because it's so deep, so dense, so rich. There's a lot to cover here, and, and uh, just the, the time frame uh, on a Sunday morning is not adequate to just cover the entire thing because it's so rich. So I want to talk a little bit about what's called chiastic structure. So some of you are waking up this morning. I hope he talks about chiasms today. Well, you're welcome because the Lord has heard your prayer. We're going to talk a little bit about chiasms, and, uh, and what that basically means is in the actual uh, Bible— uh, there are there's a literary device that has been used time and time again. In fact, the more I, I went on my own like chiastic like rabbit trail this past week, thinking a lot about chiasms and whatnot, and they're actually pretty fascinating. Um, but one thing I find that's really interesting about this, why I find this so fascinating, is this show. It's just another layer of the complexity and the beauty of the Bible. It, it's 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 absolutely amazing. But I want to talk a little bit about this. So this is a chiasm is a literary device. I'll just read what I've written up here that presents a series of ideas and then repeats them in opposite order to enhance the message and to highlight the author's point. Chiastic patterns in the Bible are just one example of the richness of God's inspired word. Uh, one simple example of this is Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It's, again, it's up there. If you were to simply read the text right there, it basically is kind of like A, B, C, C, B, A. It's kind of the idea there. Just think of it. The word chi 
uh, actually comes from the Greek letter chi, which is, looks like an X. So if you were to like cut the X in half, you have like an arrow. All right, this is kind of a big idea there. So it's intended to go to a particular main point. So if we were to just take, for example, by way of um, practice, uh, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds, it's the first part, B, the blood, C, of man, by man, C, B, shall his blood then lastly be shed. Okay, the center point of this, the main point, what seems to be the author's intent is to point out that man shed the blood of another man and thus destroying this whole thing of relationship that God is actually up to in this world, that human beings were spiraling out of control and they were taking matters in their own hand and severing or breaking or destroying the human relationships that God had intended. So, again, the whole idea behind chiasms are to kind of create another layer of complexity in the text so that when you think about this, it points to a specific idea. I, I hope this is not confusing to any of you. I'm going to just thoroughly confuse the rest of you in case you're not. So we're going to go to the next slide. Um, and I need to talk a little bit about this because it it's, there's a lot of text there. I know you're like, whoa. So if you're watching this online, I just apologize to you right now. So I'm going to break this down for you. So don't get lost in the, the, the small text right there because I know you can't read it because I can't even read it myself. Um, but that's basically what, all that we just read there. Verse 19 all the way to verse 3. It's the entire section. So a lot of scholars actually believe that this entire section is, is a chiasm. And I want to break this down because it's... it's once you think about it, it's, it's actually not that complicated to think about it. But each one of these sections is another movement, like in this arrow, pointing to a particular main point that the author is trying to get at. Does this make sense so far? Anybody wildly lost? No? Okay. So here we go. So what we're going to look at today is verse 19 and verse 30. So the two end sections of this chiasm, right? Does that make sense? So next week, just if, make sure that you're following. What are we going to look at next week? Yes, good job. Good. You're paying attention. So, yes, 20, 21, and 28, 29. So that's what we'll look at. So each one of these basically build upon itself. Each one of these have their own main point, but each one of these main points point to a, a specific point. And the center of all of this seems to be this main idea that Jesus is the source and means of eternal life. He's the source and the means of eternal life. So if you were to ask this question, what is John the author, pointing to? What's his main objective here in uh, describing these various layers of Jesus' statements? His main point is that Jesus is the source of life. In other words, it all comes from him. And he's the means of life. In other words, you cannot have it apart from Jesus. That's his whole point. So don't miss, if you, if you want to use modern terminology, don't miss the big E on the eye chart. Don't miss the main point in the chiasm. That's the whole idea that I want us to think about. So Jesus' claims to be, and we'll take a look at each one of these claims along the way. Number one, uh, I'll just go through them real quickly. Number one is that that he is aligned with God, and we'll kind of take a look at that specific main idea today. So with that being said, I want to just jump right in uh, based upon sort of this chiastic structure that the text seems to be uh, indicating, and then begin to take a look at each one of these things building up to the main center point. So number one, let's take a look at the idea of Jesus' being aligned with God. So I really want to just look at two specific things today um, based upon the outline here. Number one, I want to just really focus on the sonship of Jesus. And again, this plays out in the text. So let's go back and read John chapter 19, or 5 verse 19. It says this, the son, the son, 
What's Jesus talking about here? He's using terminology to describe his relation to God. And Jesus uses terminology to say the son. There's no doubt he's referring to himself. And again, why is he responding to this right now? Because the religious leaders are coming to him. They're like, why did you heal this guy? Why did you operate on the Sabbath? Like, who gave you the permission to do something that we know that you're not allowed to do? Jesus' whole point is like, look, the son does what the father does. And again, this is where it gets really powerful. Jesus is in essence saying, you want to know who healed this guy? The father healed this guy. But I'm working in alignment with the father. I'm the son. So I do whatever the father does. The son does whatever the father does. Again, he's no doubt blowing minds. So much so. And again, we'll get to this in just a moment. But a lot of people even kind of raise the question, did Jesus ever even claim to be God? And the answer is emphatically, absolutely yes. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening here. And in a variety of different layers. Um, so much so, in case if you just missed the main point, how do we know this? Because the religious leaders are so up in arms. They, their only solution is Jesus has to die. So whatever Jesus is saying, he's obviously not just saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a prophet. I'm a you know, religious life coach. All of those things are benign. All of those things do not cause a radical response. But if one like Jesus shows up and is like, hey, I and the Father are one in the same. I do whatever the Father tells me to do, and the healing that happened on the Shabbat is a healing that God intended to do. And if you have a problem with me, you actually have a problem with God. Do you realize how this is insane? And we'll get to some conclusive thoughts on this in just a moment. But first of all, I just I want to take this in order. So number one, the idea of sonship that Jesus claims before the Father. So again, Jesus says this again, verse 19. The Son does whatever he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that's what the Son does. I actually think, again, thinking through chiasms, like I said this past week, I actually think that's kind of a chiasm as well. Like, again, listen to it again. The Son does what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... This is what the son does. Kind of like go in and then like a mirror result. So again, Bible should be beautiful and amazing. And it is. All right, verse 30, jumping on down to the end of the chiasm. Um, I can do nothing on my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, i.e. the father. This idea of language that Jesus uses or appropriates to think about the terminology of son or sonship is something that's kind of broad throughout the Bible. So, for example, um, Adam, even though in the original uh, introduction of the Bible, Adam is not described as the son of God. We don't get that terminology to describe Adam until you get to the New Testament where it describes kind of this genealogy traced all the way up through Adam where it says Adam was the son of God. Uh, we see terminology of God describing to Israel. I think it's like uh, Exodus chapter 3 or 4, something like that. God actually describes before Pharaoh. Remember, the people of Israel were enslaved to the people of Egypt or the Pharaoh of Egypt, and they were oppressed by them. And so God actually comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, I want you to let my people go. Israel is my firstborn son. God actually uses this language to say, Israel is my firstborn son. They are special to me. They are unique to me. And then finally, uh, another, like, round of this, you see this language get used oftentimes throughout the Old Testament. But one of the primary other uh, analogies of this is uh, Daniel chapter 7, where there's this unique uh, character that gets brought into the scenario. So you have this image of 
what's described as the Ancient of Days. No doubt it's a reference to God, that God is on his throne. But then you see this other unique character, figure, that is described as the Son of Man. You're like, who's the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man, no doubt, would be an Adam figure, like someone that is human, of human origin. They're not necessarily divine. They're not necessarily immaterial. They actually have physicality. They're human being. Um, but they are so unique as a human being, they ascend to this like high level with Yahweh God. And so the question that should be you know, on everybody's mind, especially when you read that particular passage, is like, who is this son of man? Who is this son of God figure that's elevating, ascending, rising to the same level of beauty and moral goodness and complexity and wonder and honor and, and worship and judgment as Yahweh God? And so Jesus uses this language to say, the son, I am the son. I am the one. I'm the truly human one. I, but he's also truly God. And his whole point seems to be indicative of this idea that he fully bears the image of God. He is the full human one. In other words, Jesus is the truly human one. That is all that Adam should have been, but wasn't. Again, just in case you need a quick little reminder, remember the story of the Bible opens with God creating all things. It's all good. His declaration over all creation is it is good. God creates human beings to basically be a reflection, a bearer of his image. And as a result of that, their commission by God was to be fruitful, to multiply, to uh, produce offspring, to cultivate the earth, to make something absolutely beautiful upon this planet. Kind of like a tangible kingdom or tangible vision, a representation of this intangible kingdom that God has initiated. But what we know is that Adam and Eve ultimately... Basically, they rebel against God. They turn against God. And, and rather than being agents of good and obedience and love and appreciation and oneness with God, they turn from God, take matters in their own hand, and they unleash chaos upon this planet. And again, you see guys like Cain and, Aiden, Cain and Abel. Uh, there's a murder that ends up taking place. And you see death unleashed upon this planet. Death is unleashed in our world. And we see this over and over and over again. We cannot escape death. It's all around us. But this is the beauty of the story of the Bible is that God has a solution to the death problem. His aim is to come into this world as a source of ultimate, infinite uh, light and life to overcome death. And this is what we see with Jesus. But God uses human beings to do this. Jesus becomes the fully human one and does all this. But his role in this earth or on this earth is as a son. So I want to just think about even more fully with regard to this. Now, the fact is that when we when Jesus uses the idea of sonship, or we think of God as Father, that can be triggering and challenging for some people, because this language to describe God as Father, especially for those who have had father wounds, can be particularly disruptive and hard. 
So oftentimes when I talk to men, and especially men that I have conversations with, and again, I'm going to talk to you guys, men specifically, especially men that find themselves in a matter of dealing with authority issues or isolation or relational conflict or being emotionally distant and not being able to connect with mom, with their, with their, with their parents or their kids or their wife, uh, or we have these challenges that oftentimes happen. One of the things I've discovered over and over again, usually you follow it upstream, what you end up finding is that there's a flawed image of God the Father. And so this plays out into how they live in this life with other people on a relational level. It absolutely matters. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that oftentimes this idea of the image of God and how you think about God as Father is oftentimes shaped by either a projection of or a rejection of your actual earthly father. And I'll give you an example of this in terms of like, say, for example, rejection. If dad was rude, condescending, overbearing, abusive, you have a tendency to maybe look at God as father and say, I reject God as father. I don't want to have anything to do with God because God is overbearing. God is problematic. And this oftentimes ends up taking place in people's understanding and unpacking of who the nature of God truly is. Or if you want to think of it in terms of a way of a projection, if God, or if your dad was distant or non-relational or passive, oftentimes you can formulate your understanding about God in that same sense. So you can look at your life and say, uh, I can sin and there will be no consequences for my sin because my dad was passive. He never uh, spoke to me about issues of correctives. Uh, so therefore God maybe is that way. Um, or you can think of it this way because I've gone through horrible circumstances in my life or suffering that because my dad never really cared to come into my suffering and speak life and wholeness and beauty over me or pray for me. Therefore God does not care or is indifferent about the suffering that I'm going through. So we project our understanding of our father in heaven, based upon the correlation that we have with our Father on this planet. One other way in which we can think about this is if your dad was abusive. We have this tendency, and I've noticed this within many men, that because you go through suffering, maybe therefore God is tormenting you. God is kind of like a projection of your earthly father. And what I want to suggest to you is that what Jesus shows us is that he describes for us by way of his relation to the Father, that everything he does is a reflection of the true nature of who God is. This is really good news. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that if you allow your heart to embrace this, it will absolutely change you. It will free you. It will liberate you from false notions, false ideas of God as Father being either abusive or indifferent or apathetic or uncaring or angry or tormenting, that that's not who God is. That's either a projection or a rejection based upon false notions that you have unfortunately had to go through. And I just want to lastly say this. If that's the type of relationship you have with your father, I'm sorry you had to go through that. My, my hope would be that Jesus would radically bring healing and wholeness to your life. If you are a father and this is kind of the life that you are living or embodying because of that's what was uh, depicted for you growing up, you have great opportunity by the gospel to be freed from that, to be liberated from that, to chart a new course, to create a new legacy for your family right now and for generations to come. You can, you can change it by the power of God's grace to be transformed. But Jesus' whole relationship, describing himself as son to the father, is really essential to all of this. That God's heart as a father, that God's heart is one of a father's heart. That this fully, completely, 
accurately was displayed through Jesus. So much so that Jesus would actually later say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you are wondering, trying to figure out, like, what is God really truly like? You can truly look at Jesus and develop a deep, robust theological understanding about how good and beautiful God as a father truly is. There's a movement even in today's world to try to dismiss language to describe God as father. Again, based upon cultural uh, elements and movements of abuse and projections and so on and so forth. And I would say that that's, that's not a good theological choice because for some reason God chose to identify himself as father. Let's, 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 uh, honor that revelation of who God is, but let's at the same time make sure that we see it through the proper uh, filters of Jesus's life so that we can absorb and uh, bring into our understanding, our awareness, the truly beautiful nature of who God truly is based upon how Jesus reflects him. So with that being said, I want to move on not only to the first thing, which we see right here again, the sonship of Jesus before the Father, moving on to the very last thing, I want to think about the alignment of Jesus with the Father, because this really seems to be the heart of what Jesus is trying to identify here, is that, again, verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord. Verse 30, again, the end of this whole thing, he says, I can do nothing on my own. The indication is everything I do, I do out of direct alignment and correlation to God. This is a really radical claim. Um, nobody in this room would be so bold or arrogant to assert something um, along this level. I mean, can you imagine talking with somebody who's a follower of Jesus and be like, hey, everything I do, everything I say, every action I've ever done is always in complete harmony and alignment and oneness and agreement with God all the time. Sure. Let me talk to your roommate. Let me talk to your spouse just to verify that, right? We know that it's silly, but this is exactly what Jesus is stating. So essential to think about and consider what Jesus is describing here. I think about there's something really to be said about the power of alignment and agreement. If I think about my own life, uh, especially in my marriage, the number one waste of time and energy that I've ever had in my life, in fact, our lives, I should say, with my wife and I, Sherry, is any time we find ourselves out of alignment or not in agreement is literally just a waste of time. And it's absolutely mind-boggling how many hours can be wasted on something, something so small, something so insignificant, something so minor, but we can spend hours going over, like, what did you really mean by this? Or what did you mean by this? I didn't really mean this. I meant this. And, like, before you know it, three hours go by. We're like, man, we could have gone on a hike. We could have gone to eat dinner. We could have eaten ice cream. We could have watched Three Chosen. We could have done something rather rather than just literally waste our time and energy and just dealing with this fact that we are not in alignment right now. But think about how much time and energy is wasted in our lives in this life based upon living our lives not in alignment with our Father God. And what we see with regard to Jesus is saying, everything I do, always, every time I move, is always in alignment with God the Father. This is massive because what Jesus wants us to see is that whoever he is, whatever he's doing, everything is in perfect mirrored alignment with God the Father. 
Again, going back to the actual miracle that takes place there in this pool. That what Jesus, again, very boldly and clearly is stating with no ambiguity is the fact that this guy is healed today on the Sabbath day is a testimony of God working. This is God who did this healing. God used me, Jesus would say, as the means, as the vehicle. Uh, but this is exactly what's happening. And again, you can imagine why religious leaders are absolutely up in arms and irate and frustrated with Jesus over this. Because they see Jesus as nothing more than a mere man. That's all that he is to them. And for him to claim something like this would be along the categories of blasphemy. And that's exactly why they want to put Jesus to death. So in closing, I want us to think about Jesus' declaration of being equal with God the Father. And as I was thinking about this, this is important for us to understand just by way of distinguishing Jesus from every other religion or religious movement on planet Earth now. Jesus is utterly, completely unique. No one else goes around claiming to be the unique son of God. So, for example, you can have something like Baha'i that would describe or see Jesus as a manifestation of God, like a great prophet. Buddhism would describe Jesus as an enlightened man, kind of like a Buddha, like he had unique uh, experiences in his life that propelled him into sort of a state of enlightenment. Islam would see Jesus as a respected prophet, but certainly not God. Jehovah's Witness would see Jesus uh, never, they would claim that Jesus never declared himself to be God. Mormonism uh, would teach that Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer, a God, but not the God. This is really important because they would see all people having this potential of ascendancy to Godhood-like status, but not Elohim-like God status, so uppercase versus lowercase. They would see Jesus as lowercase g. Uh, And then modern secularism, which basically would have this uh, idea to view Jesus as a really good, gifted teacher, kind of like a life coach. Someone that you could build sort of a fandom around because he's really, really amazing. He helped poor people. He was kind of like a modern hippie slash liberal uh, progressive that was out to just make sure that everybody had all sorts of uh, means for food to appropriate health care. That's like his main idea. So therefore, it's kind of you can derive this mindset about Jesus that he's really just a great guy that we can look at. We can learn from his moral example. We can... Uh, benefit from his teachings, his concepts, his ideas that he conveys and communicates. But here's what I want to land with, is this idea that that if that's all that Jesus is, is nothing more than a really great or exceptional moral teacher, uh, we have problems here. And the best way to kind of summarize this are in the words of C.S. Lewis. And I just wanted to simply close by reading what he had to say about this. He describes this uh, challenge in these words. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about Jesus. And here's what he says. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I did not accept his claim, but I cannot accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing you must not say, Lewis would go on to say. He says, a man who has merely a man, uh, a man who was merely a man said the sort of things that Jesus would say is not a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. And C.S. Lewis's point, describing that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. This is the big issue that we have to consider when we face the claims of Jesus. If he is merely a good moral teacher, then what do you do with the fact that he says, I'm one with God? And if he is one with God, if that's actually true, then that has implications over your life. Because it means that everything that Jesus has to say, everything that Jesus has come to do, will in some point down the road impact our lives. So we have to make a choice. We have to think about the words of Jesus. Because elsewhere in the passage that we just read, Jesus says, look, the Father has given all judgment into my hand. One day, all humanity will hear my voice arise, just like Lazarus arose, but every human being that has ever lived on this planet will arise and stand before Jesus and have to give an account as to how we discerned, how we followed, how we lived the, the claims of Jesus. Did we receive them? Did we respond them to them? Did we reject them? Did we live our own life in our own lifestyle, our own way? Or did we surrender and submit ourselves to him as king and lord, as a good king? Again, I realize that this may be very complicated, may be very difficult, because we live in a world today that says we can have all the autonomy that we choose. We can become anything we want if we just put enough energy and good vibes towards that. And there is some truth to that. It's not entirely untrue because we have a tremendous power to do things that human beings have been gifted by God to do. But the problem is, if we begin to believe that to the point at the exclusion of God, whereby we become our own selves a perception of God, and we dismiss Jesus as who he claimed to be, or dismiss the Father who Jesus came to represent, and we begin to live our own lives, and we will find ourselves in a perennial state of brokenness and ultimately destruction, like what Jesus says. And the invitation for us even right now is to just pause and reflect and think upon the words of C.S. Lewis and really consider, how do we perceive Jesus to be? How do I perceive Jesus to be? Is he merely a liar one that can be dismissed? Is he a crazy person, a lunatic, just spewing random crazy stuff? Or is he truly Lord? And if he is truly Lord, what does that mean for me as a human agent created in his image, invited by him to trust him with all that I am? So I'm done. I want to invite us all to stand. And what I want to do right now, I'm going to pray over us, but I'm also going to invite you guys that if you are here and you need prayer for anything that's going on, in your life. This is one of those moments to really press in, to respond to who God is, to respond to the invitation of Jesus to trust him. So let me pray over us, and then we will dismiss you all. So Jesus, right now, we come to you, and we thank you, God, for your love that you have sent Jesus into this world. God, you've not abandoned us in this world. You've not created this world and just departed. You're not an absentee parent. You're deeply hands-on. You have deep care and compassion for this world, for its brokenness. You have deep compassion for our lives and the pain and the suffering that we find ourselves going through and the alienation that we get caught up in and the feelings of meaninglessness, purposelessness. 
And yet, God, you invite us to come to you, just like you came to that pool and you healed that man. God, so you can continue and will continue and are continuing to do the very same things that you did back then. So I got over this community here right now. We just pray that you would just create a state of vulnerability whereby we could be transparent before you and responsive to you. So God, anybody here in this room right now that just needs healing, wholeness, salvation, life, forgiveness, God, that they would turn to you as the life giver, as the one who forgives, as the father that truly loves and cares and carries us through our shadows of brokenness. We trust you, Jesus, to work. Thank you, God, that by gathering here today, we're not gathering just merely in memory of something that happened a long time ago. We're gathering to celebrate a resurrected, risen God that's active presently. So help us right now, God, as we step into the remainder of this week. And for anybody here that just needs prayer, and I just want to say this to you as we close, if you have need for anything, I don't care what's going on, whether it's physical malady, you feel unrest in your soul, you feel just challenges that need to be dealt with, given to God, maybe sin that needs to be forgiven, maybe just anxieties that you can't get past, whatever it is, you guys know what it is. We all bring our own stuff in here. It's all different. We want to pray for you. So if you have need for anything that's going on, please don't leave before we have an opportunity to pray with you. So God, again, thank you for this time, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.